it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, July 12th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Happy to have you all here. Thank you for listening between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And if not then, perhaps on the podcast, which is free of charge at your fingertips on demand after the show is over every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. You can read my stuff there. I'm also a Fox News contributor joining TV tonight with Kennedy, my dear friend. Fox Business Network in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern time. Hope to see you there. Here on the radio show, lineup in store for you today is as follows. Ari Fleischer out with a new book. We will talk to him all about it in our next hour. We will also welcome back to the show Governor Chris Sununu, Republican of New Hampshire up in New England. We'll have a conversation with him also in that second of three hours. And in our final hour, Carol Markowitz will be here. And I might actually want to ask Carol a little bit about the topic that I'm going to open with here right now. I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. I know this has been sort of in the bloodstream since last week. I was gone. I was on vacation, so I didn't really comment on it. We touched on it. We glanced upon it a little bit yesterday, but I didn't dig in. I didn't drill down, even though it's something that we've talked about a fair amount on this show in recent months, really in recent years. The precipitating event was this incident at Morton's Steakhouse in D.C. where Justice Kavanaugh was eating, and a crowd gathered outside. Word got out that he was there. There was this mob. They wanted to protest him, and so he was sort of escorted away and used an alternate exit to not wade into this hostile crowd. And there's been a debate about what the lines of propriety ought to be when it comes to legitimate public protest, something that is good, protected, fundamentally American, and something that crosses a line, ethically or even legally. And I think it's important to put this into a broader context, which is what I'm going to do in a moment. But let me give you my rule of thumb. I've been thinking about this. I think we can probably all agree that political protest is not only protected, it's a First Amendment right, peaceful protest, of course. It's also, I think in many cases, healthy. Even when I see protests of people passionately voicing opinions that I think are wrong, not only is it something that they are able to do in this country, it's really encouraged in this country, it's also almost like a pressure release valve It's an opportunity for people to channel frustration or anger or what have you in a way that is at least in some way constructive or at least, let's say, not destructive. So if the Supreme Court issues a major decision that one disagrees with, 
conservatives have been on the wrong end of that many times, as have people on the left, including recently, very recently. People show up in front of the court, and they've got a sign that they've made at home, and they're chanting away, and they've got slogans, and they want their voices to be heard. That is, in some way, I think, cathartic, in addition to giving people an opportunity to feel like they are doing something or being heard. That's fine. I don't think anyone should have a problem with that. Then you start getting into gray areas. To me, this restaurant situation is a gray area. Now, hear me out. Remember what was it, a couple years ago? In fact, it was during the Kavanaugh confirmation. It's just been a lightning rod, this guy. And they've made him the lightning rod. It's not him. It's them. During that circus, that smear fest, that national disgrace, the confirmation process of Justice Kavanaugh, Ted Cruz, Republican senator who's on the Judiciary Committee, you might remember this, you might not, he was dining with his wife Heidi at a restaurant in D.C., and he was hounded out of the restaurant. People came up and were heckling and surrounding, and it was sort of jostling. It was ugly. That, to me, is out of bounds. That is over the line. In this case, it was people outside the restaurant I think there's still sort of a menacing element to it. I think it's invasive. I think it's creepy. I don't think it's good. But I think it's at least arguably on the correct side of the line. Like, hey, so-and-so is inside this building. We're going to peacefully protest outside the building. What the building is makes a difference. A restaurant is very different than the courthouse or the Capitol building or some you know, public organization, what have you. If you then enter the restaurant, making sort of direct contact, disrupting this person's life, that, to me, is now unacceptable, inappropriate. And then, of course, you keep going from there, showing up at people's houses. Hardly new. It's new with Supreme Court justices, but it's not a new tactic. And the thing is, we have been condemning it and decrying it on this show for years. This goes back to the Trump administration, where this became one of the popular, quote-unquote, direct action options for leftists. When you call yourself the resistance, often you think by any means necessary— So you go, you find out where someone lives, you put that address on the Internet, and you go and you harass and stalk and intimidate them where they live, with their family, around their neighbors. We saw this with Chad Wolf, the former acting DHS secretary. There were a few other examples of it as well. They went to Mitch McConnell's house down in Kentucky. I remember that. Tucker Carlson had Antifa show up while he wasn't home at his doorstep, banging and denting his front door terrifying his wife inside. Every step of the way, we have been saying this is a very bad, dangerous idea. This should not be mainstreamed. This should not be normalized. People across the spectrum of good faith, responsible people should say no. And in many cases, that hasn't happened. And that's why it keeps expanding. That's why it is now being applied to Supreme Court justices ahead of a decision. 
to try to bully them. That's what it is. And in that case, it's actually illegal. It is illegal to do that to federal judges. It seems the Biden Justice Department has no interest whatsoever in enforcing that particular law, but it is on the books. I think there would be very loud demands for enforcement if the types of people doing this sort of thing were different, let's say. Just flip-flopping. We talked about this hypothetical shortly after the Dobbs decision was released. If you had right-wingers doxing Sonia Sotomayor and showing up at her house, I think we'd be having a very different national conversation, especially if someone traveled across the country to come murder her. It's like that never even happened with Justice Kavanaugh. It was memory hold in the blink of an eye. It happened, what, early midweek? By Sunday in the Sunday morning shows, not a single mention on any of them except Fox News Sunday. We talked about that at the time. They just didn't want that example to get much oxygen. So they didn't. They just suppressed it. And away it went, just washed away. It's a magical thing that the left can do with their pals and their allies in the activist media. But it's dangerous. It's toxic. It's poison. Our politics is in a very unhealthy place in this country right now. And though the Morton's example is, again, on that scale, on the spectrum, I'd say less egregious, less concerning, more defensible than some of the other things that I've mentioned, it's not exactly a sign of civic health either. You may not have heard about this. Maybe you did. There's a left-wing organization that has put out social media messages to, and these are directed, at people who work at restaurants in Washington, D.C. Servers, hosts, busboys, people who work in the kitchen. If there is a Supreme Court justice, a conservative, at your restaurant, let us know and we'll pay you money. And if they're still there within 30 minutes, we'll pay you more. Bounties. These are bounties. When you think to yourself, what could go wrong? I think we all know what could go wrong at some point. And the fear is it will. Now, that story, again, isn't getting a lot of attention. If there were some radical anti-abortion group doxing Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, And one of their followers found the doc's address and went with a gun to try to kill that person? Would not be a one or two day story. I guarantee you that. And if that same justice were then targeted time after time, including at dinner, I think it might not be just sort of like a, oh, well, shrug your shoulders situation. I think we would be having a big, angry, panicked conversation about civility. Because the left loves to have these civility enforcement parades when it suits them. When they're the ones being uncivil, when the incivility is directed at the correct sorts of people, quote-unquote, then all of a sudden the standards seem to change or disappear entirely. And I think it's galling to a lot of people. I also think that there is an element of the hard right. Look no further than what we saw in January of 2021. There are people on the right who are not opposed to stepping well over the lines of propriety or legality, let alone good manners. 
And if this is now the new game based on the new rules that the left has set, there will be some people on the right who do it. Like, okay, you're going to do that. You're going to chase and harass and intimidate our people and bully them wherever they go in their life. Well, guess what? We're going to do the same thing. I would still condemn all of it because I think this is bad. But you'll have a lot of folks who are either silent or going along with it or sort of justifying it, sweeping it under the rug, in some cases cheering it, who will, in a heartbeat, instantly, just snap of the fingers, become aggrieved, gravely concerned, outraged. You must condemn, and you must condemn. It's like Oprah. And they'll have no credibility whatsoever. It's like, oh, okay, you're, you're suddenly upset? Why? Where were you on this? And then come the charges of whataboutism, and round and round we go. These are the dysfunctional cycles that we seem to be stuck in. And it doesn't seem like there are a lot of people, adults, who want to work to get us out of the cycle. Because on the left, which is, I think, the the prime aggressor in a lot of this stuff, the Democratic Party establishment and their allies in the press, they, on some visceral level, agree with the agitators. And they're also afraid of standing up to them. So it's sort of like, well, we kind of lost too many elections and are out of options constitutionally to achieve the outcomes that these people desire so vociferously. And they're big mad about it. So if they're going to sort of vent, if they're going to have their moment to blow off some steam, if that involves showing up at a doorstep of a Supreme Court justice or chasing them around Washington, D.C., well, you know, is that so bad? That seems to be the attitude, or worse, of a lot of these people. One of whom is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC of the squad. I thought about opening specifically with her and this little skirmish, But I didn't want to waste my time specifically with her. Right? She does her thing. She loves the drama. She lives for the drama. It's like, oh, am I the drama? Yes, girl, you're the drama. You love it. You eat it up. So just giving her attention, I've said this before, with every little thing that she throws out there, here's a new shiny object from AOC, we try not to take the bait too often. In this case, I want to address what she is saying because she's not the fringe of her party. She is increasingly the mainstream of her party on this stuff. Because I want to give examples from the top echelons of her leadership. The president, the speaker of the house, the Senate majority leader, all the way down to loud backbenchers like her with huge social media followings. So I'm going to start to walk through some of that as I continue to flesh out this point as soon as we come back. I hope you'll stay with me. A lot still to get to on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. During the Trump years, 
We would hear it all the time at protests on social media, the little clap hands emojis. This is not normal. Well, a lot of what the left has been doing should not be normal, but it is sliding toward normalization with this agitation, harassment, intimidation, bullying, which then leads in some cases to threats, destruction, and violence. There's the AOC flap that we'll get to probably in the next segment, but let's just tick down a few examples off the top of my head. There was an assassination plot against a sitting Supreme Court justice just a few weeks ago. Got very little attention, as I said. It got flushed real fast. The President of the United States could not be bothered to comment on it. No comment directly from Joe Biden. His previous spokesperson, Jen Psaki, had shrugged off the doxing of Supreme Court justices and the protests at their homes, even though it's illegal. His current spokesperson, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked about the Kavanaugh incident at Morton Steakhouse, and she said, oh, well, that's just part of democracy, paraphrasing. That's what democracy is, I believe was the quote from Jean-Pierre. I have not noticed if she has tweeted or announced her personal home address for democracy. We'll see about that. Chuck Schumer was asked about some of this. He said, look, I've been protested at my house. No big deal. If you go and look at those protests in Brooklyn, it's not conservatives. It's not red baseball cap folks. It's not the MAGA team. It's his own left wing. It's the same people. It's the same group of people calling him a chicken for not doing enough quote-unquote resistance, enough to uproot institutions and norms in order to placate whatever their fleeting political desire of the day might be. Remember when a group of people, activists, chased Senator Kirsten Sinema into a bathroom stall, proudly filming it because they think that they're like, you know, the good guys in this scenario? Remember that? President Biden was asked about it. He called it, well, part of the process. Just chasing female senators into bathroom stalls, part of the process. Doesn't end there. I've got a few more examples, including Speaker Pelosi, a couple very famous ones that you may have forgotten about, and then, yes, I promise, AOC, her misinformation, and her hypocrisy, which I will lay bare as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Now you're wondering, Guy, why are you doing multiple segments on this? Why are we walking through all these examples? I think, in response, I think that it matters. I feel like we are sliding and slouching as a country in a bad direction. And I don't point the finger of blame exclusively at one side or the other. 
but the Democrats are in charge. The left is culturally dominant in a lot of ways. They certainly control the news media or their, you know, fellow comrades do their ideological brethren. And so I think that they bear an outsized responsibility for the toxicity. But certainly not exclusive. It is not exclusive to them. I want to be intellectually honest about that. I was starting to tick through a couple examples before I got to AOC and her reaction to the whole Kavanaugh restaurant kerfuffle. We listed a couple of them. Here are just a few more. And the reason I'm making this list is because there's a term called nut picking where you pick a complete weird, strange, fringe person on the other side, and then you try to project their weirdness and their fringiness onto their entire tribe, so to speak, to discredit everyone, which is often, I think, unfair. What I'm doing here is building a case that by harping a little bit on AOC, I'm not nut picking in this case. This is a bigger problem. A problem that is now systemic, I would say, in center-left democratic politics. That is angrier and more unglued than ever. And strangely, it's happening at the same time. And this is what is so interesting to me and annoying. It's happening at the same time that these exact same people hold themselves up as the defenders and guardians of our democracy and our norms and our institutions. I know this is something that I really come back to a lot. The people who say that they're defending our norms and institutions are some of the quickest folks to turn on a dime and become purveyors of poison trying to take down norms and institutions when it's their desires that are on the line. Right? It's just a hypocrisy doesn't even cover it. And we've had, what, all of the hand-wringing about January 6th and the committee, and I've watched some of it, and I've tried to be honest about it. I've been very clear about where I stand on January 6th and President Trump's role, all of that. It's also, for me, and I'd imagine for many of you, difficult to take some of these people seriously who are so upset about political violence or domestic terrorism, whatever they're going to call it, who spent a lot of 2020 excusing it, riots in the streets, and then also, to this day, are willing to make excuses for all sorts of, not exactly the same, but in the same bucket type of awful behavior and conduct, tactics, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to call it. So I mentioned Speaker Pelosi. Just recently, she was asked, we played the sound on this show, she was asked to condemn an active campaign of domestic terrorism against pro-life crisis pregnancy centers across the country bombings multiple places have been firebombed i just saw a story today about one of these locations out in california that has had to spend six figures on security because of threats of violence That's six figures worth of money that cannot go to help women and their children whom they choose to deliver and raise. That's baby formula not purchased. That's cribs not purchased. 
That's money and resources that have they've been forced basically to direct that cash to their own security because of the threat environment that they're under. And Speaker Pelosi, the highest ranking Democrat in Congress, was asked just sort of like on any basic level to check the box and issue some sort of half-hearted, perfunctory, to be sure, condemnation. And she wouldn't do it. She went into a whole harangue about how much she loves abortion and what a great Catholic she is, like within the same breath. And then wouldn't go further. She's like, next question. I won't be talking about that anymore. She couldn't even do that. Elizabeth Warren and other senators are trying to crack down on these crisis pregnancy centers while they are under the threat of terrorism. It is evil. It is evil. You can be pro-choice. We can have differences of opinion on abortion. If you want to make illegal or make it much harder for pro-life people to help women not have abortions... That is despicable. And to use the power of government to persecute those organizations while they're under that threat is, I don't even know what to say about that. To not lift a finger rhetorically to even pretend that you're opposed to the violence. That's the Speaker of the House. It's not some random character like, you know, Cory Bush or whatever, from the squad. Maxine Waters, Democratic chairwoman, remember that from the Trump administration? She said, if you encounter these Republican officials in your life, she was talking to a a mob, whipping them up, you know, get in their faces, make sure wherever they go, they're not welcome. At a gas station, at a restaurant, whatever it is. The left also has their media echo chamber. Samantha B is a comedian. I guess she still has a show somewhere. And after the Dobbs decision, here's what she said on her show. Quote, we have to raise hell in our cities, in Washington, in every restaurant Justice Alito eats at for the rest of his life. Because if Republicans have made our lives hell, it's time to return the favor. Hilarious, isn't it? What fantastic comedy. Stephen Miller, Red Steves on Twitter, calls some of these quote-unquote comedy shows on TV group therapy for leftists, and he is not wrong. And then I would get into some of the stuff that's just been said even in the last few days on The View, but I just I can't bring myself to waste much time on that show. It is just an absolute festival of ignorance on The View. The point is, These self-described norms and institutions defenders are nothing of the sort. The people aghast at political violence aren't really. The people outraged by election denialism and election trutherism are actually sort of okay with it. If it's Stacey Abrams, if the violence or the threats or the intimidation is directed at conservatives... If the norms and the institutions that they say they support are actually doing the wrong thing in their eyes and not giving them what they want, well, then maybe they're not so indispensable anymore. Maybe we should burn them to the ground, figuratively or literally, I guess. Which brings us, at long last, to AOC. 
We touched on this yesterday with Dr. Nicole Sapphire, just with a medical fact check of AOC's misinformation. I know that Twitter says that they have a platform rule, a policy at policing and trying to curb the spread of viral misinformation, except we seem to see a lot of viral information from the left all the time that doesn't get the warning labels or the suspensions. It just seems like the application of the policies is less than even-handed. Is that a diplomatic way of putting it? I think it might be. So there was the story about Justice Kavanaugh sort of shepherded out the back door because there was a mob growing outside the restaurant while he was trying to have dinner. And AOC said on Twitter, poor guy. He left before his souffle because he decided half the country should risk death if they have an ectopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. The least they could do is let him eat cake. Sort of like a sneering stop whining from AOC. Now, the misinformation there is the ectopic pregnancy piece of it. There's not a single abortion restriction in any of the 50 states, including in the most restrictive states, that would not treat that situation under the law, where it's a non-viable pregnancy, a non-viable situation. So it's not an abortion to begin with. That, on top of it, threatens the life very significantly, very severely, of the mother. Every abortion law in this country has an exception or a carve-out for something like that. And yet, we keep hearing from the left this lie. Like when we get the Dobbs decision, they want to talk about gay marriage is next, interracial marriage is next, birth control is next. Oh, ectopic pregnancies. There's another story coming up I'll talk about later, uh, another apparent falsehood. Like, why do they have to deflect away to other horribles or just outright mislead and misinform? Like, fight the battle on the terrain, plant your feet, make your argument, make an honest one, and let's let people decide. Don't make dishonest decisions. Dishonest decisions to make dishonest arguments to mislead people and confuse them and distort things and make them panicked and fearful because you feel like dishonesty is the fastest, easiest path to winning an argument, quote-unquote, illegitimately. Again, no warning label, no suspension for AOC for that misinformation, just downright false Info put out there into the world by AOC. And then there was the whole debate around mocking Justice Kavanaugh or the criticisms of the leftists who are showing up at restaurants or, as I mentioned, advertising for bounties will pay you 200 bucks if you tell us that there's a justice eating somewhere and if they're still there. You know, it's like 50 bucks for the tip, 200 bucks if they're still there when we show up, you know, 30 minutes later. We'll try to get an insta mob, we'll get the rent a mob. Here we go, flash mob time. Let's go hound this person. And when you get a mob mentality, things can spin out of control. That's part of the risk here. You also get a bunch of really angry people spun up in public. 
It's just, it's a tinderbox. It is dangerous. So Matt Lewis, who is a right-leaning writer, he wrote a piece basically making the point that we've made ad nauseum here, saying, would the left be cool if right-wingers were doing to AOC what the left is doing to Kavanaugh? Right, so in my mind, that is doxing her, public, publishing her address, showing up at her house, following her around at restaurants, making threats, assassination attempts. Is that all just sort of, you know, as Joe Biden might say, part of the process? Or no? So that was the question posed by Matt Lewis. AOC responded to this because this is you know, clapping back is sort of what she does. I don't know if she does really anything as a legislator ever. She's sort of along the lines of a Marjorie Taylor Greene who just is out there throwing rhetorical bombs. Just like, well, here's a grenade. Everyone get mad. That's the AOC MTG style of congressing. But AOC loves the clapback on social media. She has very little respect reportedly within her team, even on the Democratic Party in the House, but she's got millions of people who pay attention to what she says, which is why we can't completely ignore her. So she says, right-wingers are asking this question like it's a hypothetical. They've been doing this stuff to me, quote, since day one. And she gives an example of some conservative who, I guess, tweeted some photos of her at a restaurant with someone else making fun of what the other guy was eating. By the way, little surreptitious photos of someone eating is not the same thing as what is happening to these Supreme Court justices. I feel like that shouldn't need to be said, but maybe it needs to be said slowly for AOC. But here's the other point. AOC is actively ridiculing, snarking, basically endorsing the harassment and the intimidation of Justice Kavanaugh with these mob actions, again, within weeks of an assassination attempt that no one wants to talk about anymore. We do, because it happened. And she's saying, oh, please, we deal with this all the time, whatever. No big deal. The counterpoint would be her own standards. Ilhan Omar, her fellow squadster, will occasionally have an outburst of bigotry, usually anti-Semitism. That's how she rolls. She and Rashida Tlaib. And she had another one at some point. I think it was last year. There was another one in 2019. It's kind of like the semi-annual tradition. So Ilhan Omar was anti-Semitic, doing anti-Semitic things. And she was criticized by some of her Democratic colleagues in the House. I believe, if I recall correctly, they put out a letter, some sort of a statement. There were public criticisms on social media entirely above board. Member of Congress says something. Other members of Congress object to the thing. That is how we do discourse, but not in AOC's book. No, no. She went after the colleagues, not her friend, the bigot in the squad. It was the reaction to the bigotry that she said was bad. She assailed these fellow Democrats for calling out Ilhan Omar. They love call-out culture, just not when it's directed at them. And she said it puts Omar in danger. And this is one of the squad's favorite defenses. They use it as a shield. You criticize them, that puts them in danger because then they might get threats from people, and I'm sure they do, and that's terrible. Shouldn't happen. It comes, unfortunately, depressingly with the territory these days in public life. They say, oh, you're disagreeing with us? 
that's bad because you're putting us in danger. How dare you put us in physical danger? I'm quoting her. She said, it puts Ilhan Omar, quote, in danger for colleagues just to criticize something that Omar said. That is bad. That's out of bounds. That gets AOC all mad. But organizing, traveling, marauding mobs to track down Supreme Court justices wherever they exist? Apparently not a problem for AOC. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if she operates in bad faith all the time. And if she were an outlier, that would be one thing. But as I have spent this entire show so far laying out, sadly, that is not the case. And we are not better off for it in this country. None of us. And where this heads, if it keeps going, is ugly. Mark my words. If it's not ugly enough already. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I went long in that last segment. Very quickly, I saw this story. A lot of lefties high-fiving each other, sharing it. There was a woman who was pregnant in Texas who got pulled over for driving in an HOV lane. And she was saying, excuse me, based on the laws here, this baby is a person. I should be able to use the lane. The state can't have it both ways. And people were like, yeah, boom, roasted. You show them. My response is, yeah, I'm with her. Two lives, two human beings in that car. Let her use the lane. I'm not sure that's making the point they think it is. Another hour coming up. Ari Fleischer is next on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three. Thank you so much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast, Guy Benson Show. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, 7 uh, 7 p.m. hour, rather, on Fox Business Network. Looking forward to that segment with my close friend. Coming up later in the show, in fact, later this hour, Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, a Republican. Next hour, Carol Markowitz will be here. Fox News alert. The Dow down again today. 192 points, dipping below 31,000 to 30,981 at the close. With us now is Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary, a Fox News contributor. He's president of Fleischer Communications, at Ari Fleischer on Twitter. And be sure to check out his brand new book, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and just doesn't care. It is out and available right now. Ari, congratulations on the book, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the book and your thesis and some of the examples, I just want to take a moment, I would be remiss if I didn't, to mention that today is the 14th anniversary of the passing of Tony Snow, who we have named our radio studio after in Washington, D.C., where this show is based out of. He was the second-to-last press secretary under President George W. Bush before Dana Perino. 
when I was at the White House as an intern, he was the press secretary. One of the honors of my career was helping him and accompanying him through some of his exit interviews. You were the first press secretary under President George W. Bush. There is so much goodwill, this reservoir of affection still for Tony Snow, 14 years after his death. I just wonder if you had a tribute or a memory that you would like to share. Well, he's just such an upbeat guy through everything. You know, Tony was just the classic happy warrior, a real true blue conservative, and he just had this smile and engaging way of doing battle with the press. And uh, great guy always. Ari, your book, I gave the title a moment ago. It's out now. I know it's a very superficial thing to do to ask an author about literally the cover of his book. However, there is something that jumped out at me about the cover of your book. The main title is Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias. The word that gets the most sort of attention on the cover, the most flair, if you will, looks like sort of ripped from a newspaper, is the word snobbery. And I wonder if that was an intentional choice on your part and the publisher's part, because I really do feel like, yes, of course, there's suppression. Yes, there's deception. Yes, there's egregious bias, and I think some behavior that goes beyond bias. But at the heart of a lot of it really is snobbery. The press, the media class, believes at its core that they are better than most people and more attuned with the truth or larger truths than the great unwashed. And I think a lot of the other problems really flow from that. I just wonder what you make of that. Well, you're, you're very perceptive to pick that up. And here's the problem. What's happening now with the media goes way beyond what it was decades ago when it was liberal bias. Guy, it's cultural. And my book begins with a story from CNN when Don Lemon had two guests on his show, and all they did was make fun of Trump supporters, not just Trump. He's fair game, but Trump supporters. They acted with disdain. They put on fake Southern accents and mocked these people and acted as if these people were just dumb rubes. And it's gotten to the point now, and I have this in the book too, there's a poll that came out. It's a Pew poll, and it shows the only group of Americans who think that the press understands them are college-educated Democrats. 62% of all Americans with a high high school degree or less feel misunderstood by the press. 73% of all Republicans feel misunderstood by the press. Independents feel misunderstood by the press. Democrats with just a high school degree, 47% misunderstood. The only group of Americans who say the press understands them are college-educated Democrats. Well, that's so because journalists the is they, that's because are journalists are – I would just say, Ari, the reason for that is to me is pretty simple. The only reason that you know people feel like, okay, we're, we're college-educated Democrats, we're the only group that the press really gets, it's because journalists overwhelmingly are – College-educated Democrats, that's their people. That is the problem. How many people in a newsroom were raised with guns? How many people's fathers and grandfathers took them hunting? How many people go to church regularly? How many people think life begins at conception? And when you have newsrooms this lopsided and this biased, this is why they made so many mistakes and deceived the American people time and time again. And this is what led me to write the book. 
You know, I, I call it as I see it with President Trump. There, I support him on policy. I've often criticized his behavior. I'll always call the balls and strikes. But when I sat there and I watched the press hyperventilate about collusion and the Steele dossier, I defended President Trump, and I got fired up and motivated to write this book because I was watching the press lead America astray. Their job, Guy, is to be neutral. Their job is to be objective, and they shattered that. They stopped doing their jobs because they determined, these snobs, that the American people in 2016 made a mistake, that yep. Hillary should have been elected president, and it became the press's mission, particularly the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, and NBC, to take down the president of the United States. And I believe in a free media, a neutral media, an objective media, and I blow my whistle. This is the accounting, the reckoning that the press should have done for themselves, but they never would. You know, Ari, when I look at this and I look at the conduct of the mainstream news media so much of the time, I think, and I've started to be more vocal about this because I've been talking about bias for a long time. I know some people use the word corruption. That's media corruption. To me, maybe the best, most accurate term, at least in my mind, is activism. They're activists. And I think if you can sort of think about these journalists, not all of them, but many of them, the way that they consciously or subconsciously do their jobs, if you look at it through a prism of ideological, which has strong crossover with partisan activism, where they are trying to shape the political battlefield with their coverage rather than interpreting or covering or describing it accurately, if that's the way you look at how they do their jobs, I think that has a pretty strong explanatory value. Do you? Here's examples of this activism, and I get into it in great depth in this book. I use pictures. Front page of the Washington Post when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Gigantic across-the-page headline, a pioneer devoted to equality. When Antonin Scalia died, front page of the Washington Post, giant headline, Supreme Court conservative dismayed liberals. <laughs> Why is one devoted to equality and the other is devoted to dismaying liberals? These are obituaries. This is activism, activism on behalf of the left-wing cause. And it's full of examples, one after another after another in this book. And and this is what's wrong. And you know, journalists in the mainstream media are in decline and in denial. Their industry is dying. Many of them have lose, losing their jobs. The press, the public, increasingly doesn't trust them to tell the news fully, fairly, or accurately. We used to. After Watergate, we had a lot of high regard for the media in this country. You know, the press is not the enemy of the people, but they are their own worst enemy, and they've done this to themselves. Yeah, that's a good line, and. You start to wonder, I know you grapple with this, is there any even self-preservation element where they might say, look, we kind of want to keep doing it this way because it makes us feel good and we like being gladiators for the cause or whatever, but we're killing the industry. I mean, there was the amazing timing for your book, Ari, the new Gallup poll, right? Brand new, fresh, disastrous lows on trust in the media. There's also another study on engagement. People are just not really engaging with the news media as much anymore, tuning them out. That has not only an effect on our polity, on our republic, but also on their bottom lines, their livelihoods. Could that be something of an incentive? You would think 
to get their act together just a little bit. And it just it seems like they're maybe so committed in their activism that to the part of your subtitle, they just don't care. Maybe they're willing to sacrifice their own careers for the cause. Younger journalists are increasingly going in the direction of news should be subjective. They don't believe in objectivity. Look at the meltdown in the New York Times newsroom when Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, wrote an op-ed. The headline on it was send in the troops in the middle of the riots and the looting and the arsoning of the summer of 2020. The New York Times newsroom melted down. They said the op-ed made them physically unsafe, as if that Mm. sitting in their cubicle could make them unsafe. And yet, because of the uproar... The New York Times killed the op-ed, apologized, didn't put it in the print edition, said it never fired people, right? And they fired people over it. Exactly right. So I I really don't know what the future is going to be for the mainstream media. Now, CNN is in the middle of an interesting potential change where their owners say they want to return. The new owners, the new president wants to return to objectivity. Well, this is after years of their daytime reporters, not their nighttime opinion people, not Sean Hannity, not their nighttime people, but people like Jim Acosta, people like John Harwood, who were trained to let their opinions rip at CNN. And their opinions were stridently anti-Republican, anti-conservative, anti-Trump. They were encouraged to let their opinions go on the air. And this is the White House correspondent for CNN. He didn't just ask questions. He took stands. And all of that is in my chapter about CNN, Uh, John Harwood and Jim Acosta. Terrible, terrible reporting. Not neutral, not objective. Will CNN's new management put an end to it? I don't know. Mm, We'll see. Meanwhile, Ari, I'm sure you saw this, and this is the type of book, because when I co-authored End of Discussion with Mary Catherine Hamm a number of years ago now. It was about sort of the mob mentality, shutting down debate, uh, cancel culture effectively. It's the type of book that you could probably just write sequel after sequel after sequel. It just keeps going. I feel like there's a strong possibility here for that as well, to make this a series on the press by Ari Fleischer, because at least in the near term, it is not going to stop. We don't really see many signs of a course correction. So after you went to print, long after you could add to the book, there's just, you know, a whole blizzard of examples that could very much just, you know, tack on a chapter here, tack on a chapter there. We talked for much of the first hour today about the normalization of intimidation and threats and thuggery and to some extent even violence on the political left. Going to Supreme Court justices' homes, hounding people at restaurants, you know, uh, terrorist attacks against pro-life centers. And one of the examples that I just keep coming back to is the very recent assassination plot against a sitting Supreme Court justice. I only laugh out of a sense of being incredulous. That is a massive news story. Someone was whipped up into anger about Decisions being rendered by the court. He came all the way across the country with an arsenal of of weapons, admittedly, to murder a justice. And Ari, within a few days of that revelation breaking, it was buried on like the 17th page of the New York Times the day it broke. And by that Sunday, except for Fox News Sunday, every single D.C.-obsessed, D.C.-centric political Sunday morning show on all the other networks did not even mention it once. That's another form of bias. There's overt, aggressive bias, and then there's 
bias or activism by omission, right? And I think this is textbook on that front. Well, that's why I call one of my chapters suppression. Uh, I don't know if you know this guy. Maybe you don't because not much of the media reported other conservative media did. But, you know, the New York Times will regularly report any obscure state senator, state rep who makes a statement that's uh, uh, anti-black statement. If they use the wrong words, things they shouldn't say, it gets elevated into the New York Times. Well, after Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, African-American, gave the response to the president's State of the Union address as the Republican respondee, a Democratic county chairman in Texas called him an Oreo. Mm-hmm. Did the New York Times cover it? Nope. They covered all those other people from Ohio and Florida, obscure Republicans who said anti-black statements, as they should have. Did the Washington Post cover the Oreo statement? Nope. CNN? Nope. NBC? CBS? ABC? Nope, nope, nope. It's suppression. Uh, Aid at the Democratic National Committee had an opening for a job. They sent out an email saying the only people who should apply, we don't want to have anybody who is straight, white, or gay. Everybody else, please apply. Could you imagine if an aide at the Republican National Committee sent out an email for a job opening that said, please apply unless you are gay, black, and and and, and white, or gay, black, or black, uh, Hispanic. Pick your, pick whatever you want. It would have been an uproar. The, for, the chairman of the Republican National Committee would have had to resign. But when Madeline Leader of the Democrat National Committee sent that email, Washington Post didn't cover it, New York Times didn't cover it, none of the networks covered it. It happens time and again. Intolerance, small-mindedness, bigotry on the left is ignored. When it's on the right, the press is right there to blow the whistle. And the whistle should be blown if the people are intolerant or say things they shouldn't say. But it cannot be lopsided. It cannot be one side only. That's what's tearing America apart. The public knows that there are fringes on both sides, and they want a fair-minded media who will call out all fringes. But when you only call out the fringe on the right, the right is going to get angry, and they're going to say you're not fair, and this is how people go too far. And the Mm -hmm. press is the force that's driving us apart. Well, and the press largely occupies much of the other fringe. That's really a huge part of the problem. Suppression, deception, snobbery, and bias by the press gets so much wrong and just doesn't care by our guest, Ari Fleischer, available now. So much information chronicled in one place on such a critical issue. Ari, again, congratulations. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you. You bet. And we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Let's do a quick look at Wave Watch ahead of the midterm elections. Politico reports today, quote, with just four months until the midterms, Democrats were already on the defensive in at least 30 highly competitive districts. But President Biden's toxicity has given the GOP uh, optimism about seriously contesting a fresh crop of about a dozen additional seats that the president won in 2020 by nine points or more from Western Rhode Island to California's Central Valley to the suburbs of Arizona's capital. The result is a house map that has expanded to an uncomfortable place for Democrats. Survey data obtained by Politico shows that President Biden is now underwater by double digits 
in 11 districts that he carried. So the map is expanding for the GOP in the House. And the story goes on to quote some Democrats who grimace at the polling but say that they hope that the bad news has bottomed out. Well, hope is not much of a strategy. And I'm not sure we've seen the bottom yet for this president and his party. We'll talk to Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire next. He joins us on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Just past halftime on today's show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home podcast, is free every day on demand. And joining us now is the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, a Republican governor. Welcome back to the show. Guy, great to talk to you, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing well. I have to warn you that in the coming weeks, my producer, Christine, is coming back to your state on vacation. So just be prepared. I'm not necessarily saying you should get the National Guard at the ready, but I just want you to know that that's happening. Well, as you know, Guy, when people come visit New Hampshire, it's rare that they ever leave. It's hard to walk away from a no sales tax, no income tax, no interest in I, I love that you you turned it into a plug for the state. That's absolutely perfect. <laughs> I want to play for you a soundbite of yourself on CNN. Cut 27. Listen here. First, I would fire the, the Treasury Secretary. I think she's completely misled America uh, because she didn't want to uh, kind of own the bad news. But that's part of public service. You got to own the good with the bad. You got to ease folks into it and pre- present a, a glide path. So you're calling on President Biden to fire Secretary Yellen. Uh, if you could just maybe expand on why you think that would be helpful, because you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of some accountability. There's been so little under this administration. But isn't she just carrying out the president's policies? No. Do you, do you honestly think President Biden understands macroeconomics for two seconds? <laughs> I mean, let's 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 get, let's let's get beyond that nonsense right there. Just the opposite. He relies on these folks to give him I think we briefly lost the governor to give him advice, I think, is what he was going to say and give him direction. And part of my question was, you know, ultimately the buck lies with the president. But, yes, he is not an economic master. I think that's a good way of uh, perhaps saying it politely. And, Governor, now that we have you back, you believe that Janet Yellen has been feeding some very bad advice, not only to the president and then based on that clip, also then to the American people for a very long time. Absolutely. Look, when you're the Treasury Secretary, your words carry weight. They carry weight to Wall Street. They carry weight to the banks. They carry weight to Main Street businesses. And so there's no way you add that $5 trillion onto America's balance sheet and then honestly believe that inflation will be temporary. Honestly believe that we, 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 don't, we might not get to a recession because two things are happening. Either she honestly believes it and she's a complete fool and she needs to go, or she knows it's not true and she's lying and she needs to go. But either way, that position, especially with her experience, carries so much weight, and she knows that. But if you ask me, this is, this is part of this social engineering the markets, using the Fed to social engineer a lot of different things. Um, and they know what's coming and to tell the American people that, oh, it's going to be fine when it clearly isn't. Right? They said what they did early on wasn't going to affect gas prices. Everybody's paying for it. They said it wasn't going to affect inflation. Everybody's paying for it. And look, I'm a governor. 
I, I have to stand accountable every single day for the decisions I make, and I, I'm happy to do that. And like I said, the good with the bad, you've got to be transparent and honest. This administration is so far from that philosophy. That's why she really is, needs to be there. Look, President Biden, he's more of a poster boy, if you will, for the Democrat Party and this extreme Democrat agenda. And that isn't a political fodder. It's reality. And Janet Yellen is, is, is the, the example of that, if you will. So that's why I say you got to start with her, fire her, bring some accountability, especially to the markets, because it's the economy that's crushing American families. Well, it sounds from that answer, Governor, like you are basically anticipating a recession to come. I mean, based on what you're seeing, what you're hearing as a governor, what can one do to prepare? I mean, you've got the inflation problem. You have very little control over that. You're the governor of a small but proud state. Then if a recession comes, I mean, I know in Washington, D.C., people toss that around like, oh, you know, what will that mean politically? Well, it'll mean things politically, but it'll mean a lot more things for people who cannot afford a recession right now. They can't afford inflation and they absolutely cannot afford all the things that come. There's a parade of horribles with recession. How can you try to spare New Hampshire some of the pain of some of these failures that are present right now and might be coming down the pike? Yeah, so there's a couple things there, Guy. Number one, you can get small businesses to pool their resources to get higher up on the supply chain, right? So they get lower costs, uh, lower costs to their, their supplies coming in. We're trying to pool them together for every type of product that they can possibly buy. Um, with the, all this federal money that's out there, that's already been allocated. That's already been driven to the problem. So you got to provide assistance with those funds for things like home heating oil, energy prices, all of these things that are skyrocketing and really pounding on, on families with fixed incomes or low-income families, whatever they might be. That, those dollars are already accounted for, so let's get them back to the folks that are going to need it the most that have been, you know, as you know, inflation is the worst. This administration that claims to be supporting working families so as governors, we have the opportunity to kind of revert, turn a little bit and provide the assistance where it can you know, best be meet the need that is going to come. But, yes, unfortunately, a recession is very likely. Um, it, it, hopefully it's a soft landing. I mean, I think the Fed can still do some things there. You know, the only way to really combat high interest rates, uh, this administration knows they're going to end up tanking this economy. I mean, that, that, that's the damnable misery of it because you've got to raise interest rates. You got to start selling some of your your longer term assets uh, and, and bringing some of that that money back, pulling that. Money. Well, and and, gov- and governor, from your perspective, we're now seeing that there's a possibility that in Washington D.C. the Democrats are going to put forward a new piece of legislation that would feature a ton of tax increases on small businesses. Hundreds of billions of dollars is the rumor of tax increases on small businesses. So, I mean, you've got inflation right now, and we've got a few indications that tomorrow's report on the uh, Consumer Price Index is going to get, you know, very ugly because Brian Deese at the White House, one of their spinmeisters, he's pre-spinning the report about how it's going to look bad for these reasons, but here's the context. So I guess, you know, uh, buckle up for what's coming tomorrow on that number. But if we get past inflation and into recession, or if we're even, you know, on the brink of a potential recession, it seems crazy with raising interest rates, then raising taxes at the same time. What are they doing? 
Uh, here's an idea. Let's crush them with inflation and then really stick it to them by taking more money out of their pocket. See, yeah, right. the, Democrats have this, the Democrats have this philosophy that you know, good government is about collecting more revenue. I mean people have said that to me all the time. Oh, Governor, you should do this. You'll, you'll make a lot – the state will make a lot more money on it. That is not the mission of government to draw in revenue, just, just the opposite. The mission of government is to provide good health and safety services while getting the heck out of your way. And if you go in with that philosophy and you say, look, you know, uh, having a real free market brings everybody up, and, and that model has been proven. I've cut taxes time and time and time again in New Hampshire, and I have the biggest surplus you, you, uh, you know, you, we've ever had. And we have population moving in in New Hampshire. We're the only state with a growing population in the Northeast last year. So we, we just keep getting out of people's way. We deregulate. But they have a different philosophy. Government will solve your problems. Government I'm, – I'm a governor. And I'll be the first one to tell you the government isn't here to solve your problems. Our job is to create as many doors of opportunity as possible for your family, for your business, for your kids, whatever it might be. Let's create all those doors, and then you do you. You decide which door is right for you to walk through. But our job is not to tell you what the solution is, and your round peg has to fit into, into our process. That is just old-fashioned way of thinking of it. So a smaller government, more localized government – Less, less control. Let the, let's get back to letting free markets do what they do best, what made America great. But this administration is completely backwards, and I'll, I'll challenge you on that first point. They are not there to carry out Joe Biden's policies. Those, these are not Joe Biden's policies. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on with Joe Biden, frankly, but these are this kind of party socialist agenda that has taken over, and, um, and you just have a, a lot of other folks pulling the strings right now, and American families are hurting. You got it. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you and, see it every day. I get the point that you're making, and it's well taken. I would just say I think we're letting the president off the hook by not putting his policies on him. Ultimately, he ran for the job. He got the job. He's the president. The buck stops with him. Of course he's not the one dreaming a lot of this stuff up. I think if it were Joe Biden 10 or 15 years ago, starting from scratch, he might have gone about this differently. He's not. There's a lot of different pressures. There's questions about him being up for the job, but ultimately he's the guy with his name on the door, so to speak. It's his administration. That's the only point that I'm making here, Governor. And on this broader point about D.C. and the, the different philosophies, the contrasting philosophies that you're describing, someone who has gone along with basically every single thing that the Democratic administration and congressional leadership has asked of her, is one of your U.S. senators, well, really both of them, but one of them is up for re-election this year, Maggie Hassan. You decided not to challenge her in that Senate race. You're running for re-election as governor instead, and we're still kind of waiting to see who the Republican will be. Seems like a winnable race. You have expressed on this show a lot of confidence in the past that even if you're not in that race and you, you bowed out, uh, you think the Republicans, your party, can beat her, and she's got a real opportunity uh, to lose this fall. She's got a lot of money, though. She's got the power of incumbency, but she's got this voting record and a very unpopular president and an agenda that's sort of crashing and burning. How do you see that race in New Hampshire as someone who understands Granite State politics better than anyone? Well, let me let me put it this way. Maggie Hassan has spent $20 million. Two years ago, she had an approval rating of 42%. She spent $20 million. Guess what her approval rating is today? 42%. Uh, everybody knows that Hassan hasn't been here. Everybody knows that she's walking the same policies. She's doomed. And, and the Republican winner of that primary is going to beat her because you can't just come in at the, at the sixth year of your term as a senator and start convincing people here in New Hampshire that you've been involved, you've been engaged, you've been on the ground. So it's not flying. And, and she's trying everything she can to sell a false bill of goods 
But our voters are smart. They see right through it, especially in New Hampshire, where they want to see you and, and, and meet you and sit down with you and all of that. They haven't had the ability to do that with her for five years. Uh, she's trying to fool them at the last minute. I don't care how much money you put behind it in New Hampshire. It's just not going to fly. And I'll go back to the point I was previously making about Joe Biden, if, I'm, if I may. Sure. Politically, every, everyone wants to beat up on Joe Biden. And I'm with you. Don't get me wrong. But it, that's just he's, he's such an easy target. But let's not remember, Joe Biden is not running in November. Are running this November. And so, as a whole, as a party, all those Democrats, or a senator, or a congressman, or you're in the cabinet, you are the ones that have to be responsible for the policies and the lack of action against this administration to, to properly manage inflation, to properly manage the southern border, to properly manage what happened in Afghanistan. So, as a party, the Democrats need to be held responsible because we're not voting for Joe Biden in November. But everyone needs to look at their their representatives or their Democrat candidates and say, are they really going to change the tide? And I would leave I would leave you with this. Ten Nobody seconds, Governor. Washington's good. So why would we send back the same people and expect something different? It doesn't yep. work that way, right? I think that's a very potent one-line question to pose to voters. And we just heard it there from Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. Governor, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, and I guess we have to talk about First Lady Jill Biden. Correction, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden. And her speech that she gave down in San Antonio to a Hispanic group, and someone wrote the speech for her, and she read it, or tried to, and there was some interesting content in there. Cut one. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, (laughs) is your strength. Yikes. Okay. Let me just give my hot take here which is that I don't really think this is that big of a deal. It's sort of fun to poke fun at. I think Bogodas, is that what she said? When she was trying to pronounce Bodegas, maybe more damaging. Bogodas. It's like the whitest thing ever. Actually, not the whitest thing ever. The whitest thing ever was last year. Same person, cut 28. So say it with me. See? The future is ours. Si se puede. When she was trying to say si se puede. She's not a medical doctor. Apparently didn't get her PhD in Spanish either. Did she even study Spanish at any point? Why would they put her in that position to say something like si se puede if she has no idea what it means or what she's saying? Regardless, the tacos line from Texas yesterday... It got sort of some laughter and applause in the room. I don't think it was as immediately offensive as some people are making it out to be. I did see an association of Hispanic journalists put out a statement admonishing the First Lady. One memorable line was, we are not tacos. Oof. But 
it's just sort of embarrassing pandering. And it comes at a bad time for the Democratic Party in general, where Republicans are making gains among Hispanics. I'm actually going to write about this for tomorrow at townhall.com. Maybe we have an opportunity here on the show to delve into it a little bit further tomorrow or the next day, because I think it's interesting. But you've seen some of the electoral outcomes down, especially in South Texas, a few other areas. You're seeing a shift in polling nationally as well. That much-discussed New York Times poll came out yesterday. We dug through some of the numbers. President Biden's approval rating is dismal among Latinos. That a lot of progressive activists insist on calling Latinx, which is something else that means nothing to them. And in fact, I would say is much more off-putting, I would guess, and potentially more damaging than the first lady reading a line comparing the diversity of a community to the diversity of tacos. Right? I don't think you would have gotten the type of response in the room if it was facially insulting. I just think it's mostly embarrassing. And through a spokesperson, I guess the first lady has apologized, no harm intended. And I agree. I think this is worthy of some needling and some jokes, but not exactly a freak out. And that's mostly what I've seen from Republicans. Senator Marco Rubio yesterday tweeted just a stock image of a hard shell taco. And he said, this is my new profile pick, <laughs> which I thought was pretty good. And then the newly elected Myra Flores, who flipped that long-standing Democratic district into the red category a couple weeks ago. We talked about that being a siren for Democrats, looking at not just the national numbers of Biden, but specific shifts. As I said, along that border in Texas in particular, she pulled the upset. She won that special election. CNN is running a piece, an opinion piece, today. That says, quote, these GOP Latina candidates are not the real deal. And there's a photo of her accompanying the article. Not the real deal. So Myra Flores, I think, charmingly tweeted out a screenshot of the CNN piece. She says, as per CNN, I'm not the real deal. Maybe I'm not the right type of taco, (laughs) which is good. Oh, Dr. Jill. Bogodaz. My only regret about this mini, silly tempest and controversy is that it didn't all happen today because the Taco Tuesday jokes would just write themselves. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Carol Markowitz joins us when we return. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are here with us the 5 to 6 p.m. portion of the 3 to 6 p.m. show every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free each and every day. It's on demand at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in tonight. I'll be on Kennedy with my dear friend, 
just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. See you there. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, as I said here yesterday, coming off my vacation. I may have had uh, more than my fair share of long drinks on vacation. May have had to go replenish the stock for my parents. They're like, wait, where did it go? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll go find a few six-packs. Sorry. (laughs) TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding nationally. Check it out. You can see where they're sold near you. You can also order online. That's TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only and always drink responsibly. With us now is Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and at foxnews.com. Carol, great to have you back here. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. You know what? I actually want to start with this, and I know I'm a little late to this because I was off last week. I just wanted to ask how your fourth went and make an observation about July 4th. But did you have a good one? I did. I had a really nice July 4th. I was actually in New York at my in-laws' house, and it was terrific. A bunch of immigrants celebrating how incredible this country is. Couldn't be better. See, and that's what I want to sort of pick up on a little bit. And I've seen this occasionally in recent years where the 4th of July seems to be now this sort of day where there's a ritual for certain people, typically on the political left, to dump on America. Because everyone mm-hmm. is celebrating America often in over-the-top fashion with just yep. star-spangled excitement and everything. <laughs> they feel like they need to be contrarian and talk about all the problems that we have. And I get it. And I think some of that's just sort of like cringe and eye-roll and dull and very boring, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, but they've done it. That's fine. It felt a little bit more intense this year. It was more widespread. It comes on the heels of new polling that the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as extremely proud to be American has hit an all-time low. There does seem to be something in the water, in the culture, where it's almost like the appropriate response within a growing segment of the American population to view America and a day that just celebrates the country and the founding with a great degree of skepticism, if not contempt. And as someone who was born abroad, who came to this country, who sought it out, and your family sought it out, and now you're building a life here with your family, number one, what do you make of the detractors who are often born here, raised here, a very privileged position? And then secondly, I guess the follow-up question is, what does July 4th mean to you as an immigrant? Yeah, I also noticed that this year it was more intense. I think a lot of people, um, you know, kind of posted stuff that maybe they would regret in the future. I think with Roe v. Wade being overturned, they were like, this is not America. This is not the freedom I knew. But all of this is nonsense to me because if you came from somewhere else and you got here, you just feel so lucky and you just feel this sense of like, the people that were born here have no idea that they were born on third base. They don't really don't know how close they are to home plate and how amazing it is here. And, I, you know, I mentioned my in-laws. So I was born in the Soviet Union, but my in-laws are from Israel, which is, you know, a free country and a good, healthy country. And still, they came to the U.S. for something that only America has. The American dream only exists here. There is no Swedish dream. There is no French dream. It's the American dream. And to be here and feel so lucky and so blessed and to have these like privileged, you know, spoiled people trying to ruin the day is, is 
depressing, but I, you know, we've seen this happen. I, I actually started noticing this more and more on Thanksgiving as well. You're not mm-hmm. allowed to be thankful for what you have because well, happiness is a problem, is, right? Satisfaction yeah. and happiness is a problem, yeah. right? And no one right. should be right. able be to cool feel those things. It. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. If you're happy, then you're not cool, and you know, hating America is cool. And listen, I, when I was like, well, 18, it's not. It's not even necessarily coolness. It's more like if you're not unhappy, if you're not horrified if you're not angry and outraged by what america is Mm -hmm. then you are the problem right and you know you have all the privilege and it's actually violence against people who are historically not privileged and you know all of this stuff and look i'm willing to concede that we have Mm -hmm. flaws we have always had flaws we've made a lot of progress on some of them i think that we've gone backward on others but that doesn't take away from the miracle that this place is overall. And I think to miss that forest for the trees is to miss really the most important thing about the country. And I think it's sad. I think it's destructive. And I think it's useful for someone like you to offer these reminders to people who have only known relative peace, prosperity, etc. in this country as their birthright. And in many cases, clearly do not appreciate it almost at all. Exactly. Yeah. In July, July 20th is also my America anniversary. I celebrate it every year. I'm going to, you know, write something about it this year like I do every year. And I, I just I feel so lucky. I, and I feel it all the time. I know that that sounds cheesy, but I, you know, so many times I still have family in Russia. I had family in Ukraine up until recently. I, I, you know, absolutely know that my life could have gone so differently and how lucky and blessed I am. And the only people luckier and more blessed than I am are the ones who were born here. And it's, you know, that that's really the, the, the only higher privilege are the people who got here from birth. Um, but, you know, it's also been interesting to me, you know, with all this America-hating post-Roe v. Wade being overturned is all these people realizing that these liberal leftist European countries have tighter abortion laws than we do. And suddenly it's like they're, they're, you, could, you could see their, their, them finding out this information and being just completely rocked by it. But, you know, when, you, when they're talking about how America sucks, like where would be better for you? Where would you prefer to go? Yep. And and I will just also add, and we can put a pin in this conversation for now, and I look forward to reading that column coming up about your America-versary. This year, it was the overturning of Roe versus Wade. If that had happened a few months prior, it would have been something else. It would have been a mass shooting. It would have been some sort of controversy involving race that we saw spark a bunch of riots a few summers ago. It seems like there's something that they hang their grievance hat on every year regardless. And this year it happened to be abortion. That was the most recent thing for them to say, look at the destruction of democracy and we're such a global embarrassment and so on and so forth. And I think there's a difference between being reflexively, uncritically jingoistic with blinders on and everything's perfect and, you know, love it or leave it and all of that and just being someone who is deeply appreciative of what is so right about this place, even in the face of warts and flaws and all of it. And I think that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is what we've just been discussing, sort of hostility, outright or subtle uh, or worse. And it's just more than anything sad to me. It makes me sad more than it makes me angry, but sometimes it also does make me angry. Now, Carol, to pivot here, but it's related, something that's also, I would say, 
all-American is the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and the right to peaceably assemble and to protest. There's baseball, apple pie, and American protest. And even if you don't agree with protests, it's a sacred right in this country. You have a piece in the New York Post about sort of the new tip of the spear of protesting. And it's maybe not that new. We've seen this shift in this direction for a couple of years now. But a move away from going and picketing outside the Supreme Court with placards and chanting and all of that. And instead, this sort of sea change to more direct action where you're blocking traffic, where you're doxing people and going to their houses, where you're hounding folks, where they live, where they eat, where they're going with their families. And this has been kind of the province of, for the most part, hardcore leftist activists and agitators for a while. And, of course, we've seen some right-wing echoes of this as well. January 6th comes to mind being a terrible example. But one of the changes that I'm sensing, and I want to get your thoughts on it, I know you wrote about it, is that it's getting mainstreamed and normalized on the left. And I talked about this earlier in the show, where the Democratic Party seems to be either ignoring or indulging or winking at or justifying or even celebrating Something that is at least blurring the line from legitimate protest into something a lot more toxic and, I think, dangerous. And you're saying that the Democrats, as a party now, are going to start to own some of this stuff. What exactly is your argument? Yeah, so they do own this. The the thing is, if it were conservative or right-wing protesters, every Republican in the country would be asked about it all the time. If Mm -hmm. Republicans routinely block traffic because of some grievance, you know, which climate protesters do as a matter of course at this point, uh, every Republican in the country would be asked to answer for it. But because it's this uh, left-wing protesters and the the Democrats, you know, kind of disavow them maybe implicitly, definitely not explicitly, um, they they don't get – this doesn't get hung on them. And it's absolutely part and parcel of the same thing. And the protest outside the justice's house is not only unacceptable, but it's also illegal. It's illegal because we're supposed to have a separation for the ju- for the judges. They are not supposed to be influenced by public opinion. And what is the point of protest if not to influence, if not to say, we're going to try to change your mind? And justices cannot have their minds changed by public opinion in this way. They cannot be threatened in this way, which is also what's happening. Kavanaugh had an attempt on his life. You know, somebody came across the country to kill him. And this just happened. And yet, None of this is being shut down. The Biden administration is not speaking out openly about this. And again, if it were the other side, you know it would be a daily thing which Republican supports this, which Republican doesn't. They would all be asked to be on the record about it. All right. Will you condemn? Will you denounce? Will you call off the dogs? Yep. All of that stuff. Yep. But, okay, so here's just sort of my thought about this, and I have a lot of them, which is why I write about it. It's why I talked about it earlier today on the show at some length. But, and and this might be a little bit counterintuitive, but I do wonder, Carol, if these excesses and the Democrats' indulgence of the excesses and the media bias and the double standards, I do wonder if ultimately that ends up hurting their side in the sense that most normal average people are deeply turned off by all of this. And they are not hyper online activists 
which is this tiny little echo chamber bubble that increasingly dominates center-left politics where you've got leaders and media figures all within that bubble terrified of pissing off those people, those denizens inside that little world at the expense of really understanding or being in touch with how most other people think and feel and view the world. And so if the media, I think sometimes their bias is so egregious that it hurts the Democrats because they allow the Democrats to get away with self-destructive behavior because they're sort of on board with that behavior when most people are not. I just feel like this might be shades of that where this insular, crazy little town that they occupy is actually deeply alienating to a lot of people. And ultimately, while it's frustrating to watch the double standards play out, maybe ultimately it hurts them more than many conservatives would acknowledge. What do you think of that? Yeah. No, I I could absolutely see that. So one of the incidents that I write about is that these climate protesters block traffic and a guy got out of his car and he said, please, I'm I'm on parole out of prison. And if I'm late for my job, I can go back to prison. He said, please just open one lane. One lane is all I'm asking for. And the climate protesters did not budge. And I could see even people on the left being Mm -hmm. shocked by this kind of behavior. You're ruining this man's life. And he ended up getting, um, you know, agitated and violent and he got arrested. And who knows what's going to happen to him now, right? He could easily be be back in prison now and and all because these people decided to block traffic for for their cause, which another thing is is like they, they feel that their emotions entitle them to any kind of behavior. You have climate protesters slashing tires in, in New York City on SUVs. You have climate protesters in other countries gluing themselves to artwork. I mean, just because they are mad about something doesn't mean that they can behave in this manner. And, and you're absolutely right that it's it's going to be there's a backlash to it. But I'd like to see more than just a political backlash. Like, you know, I think there need to be some serious repercussions to this kind of behavior. This is not protest. This is not using your words, as we say to kindergartners. This is something else entirely. <laughs> and they need to be held accountable. I agree. And there are some law enforcement officials who are happy to enforce the law. Others who explicitly don't want to enforce the law. And they campaign on that platform. And sometimes they win. That video that you just described involving the traffic and the the guy out on parole. I watched that video. It was really hard to watch. I felt terrible for him, the callousness of those people just sitting there and aiding his misery in furtherance of nothing was sort of astounding. But I remember thinking to myself, can you feel the progress? Because they really feel like they're the good guys. It seems like the people who are the worst behaving jerks often are the most self-righteous in their belief that they're actually the best people here in the situation and 80 percent of everyone else looks at them saying nope we spotted the a-hole and it's you and that's why that goes to my point i think that sometimes the self-awareness situation the deficit there hurts them and therefore helps us people who are trying to fight them all right carol we got to leave it there for now very interesting conversation as always carol markowitz columnist at the new york post and foxnews.com carol Always appreciate it, and happy America-versary in advance. (laughs) Thanks so much, Guy. Talk to you soon. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Happy Hour. It's The Guy Benson Show. A few weeks ago, we were talking about inflation and its impact at Costco, one of the big box sort of discount club membership stores you all know costco 
I think we're members. I just don't go very often. Adam will go occasionally. Anyway, they're famous for their little food court where you can go and get a beverage or a hot dog for a certain low price. It's a good value. There's also that rotisserie chicken that they've sold for the same price seemingly forever. And there were rumors, this was a few weeks back, that they were considering raising some of those prices. Turned out that was fake news, but fast forward a couple of weeks and some changes have come to at least a couple of those items. Wyatt, what are they charging more for now? They're charging more for the chicken bake and a soda. Okay. I'm not familiar with the chicken bake, although I think I can sort of picture it, like the big photo that they have up on their menu. So that's up. Soda is up. But the big one is the hot dog combination. The CEO of Costco was on CNBC. Craig Jelinek asked about that. His answer, definitive, cut 26. You did tweak some prices on some items on the menu which inevitably leads to speculation about the hot dog combo. Is there any inflationary environment where you would raise that price? No. No. So sleep well, America, at least for now. Even in Biden's America, the hot dog stays the same price at Costco. We'll see if that holds up. But he sounded pretty confident of that. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In our previous hour, at the top of the last hour, we welcome back former White House press secretary and Fox News contributor, our colleague Ari Fleischer, who is out with a brand new book, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care. It's out now. Here's part of that interview with Ari. You start to wonder, I know you grapple with this, is there any even self-preservation element where they might say, look, we kind of want to keep doing it this way because it makes us feel good and we like being gladiators for the cause or whatever, but we're killing the industry. I mean, there was the amazing timing for your book, Ari, the new Gallup poll, right? Brand new, fresh, disastrous lows on trust in the media. There's also another study on engagement. People are just not really engaging with the news media as much anymore, tuning them out. That has not only an effect on our polity, on our republic, but also on their bottom lines, their livelihoods. Could that be something of an incentive? You would think to get their act together just a little bit, and it just—it seems like they're maybe so committed in their activism that to the part of your subtitle, they just don't care. Maybe they're willing to sacrifice their own careers for the cause. Younger journalists are increasingly going in the direction of news should be subjective. They don't believe in objectivity. Look at the meltdown in the New York Times newsroom when Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, wrote an op-ed. The headline on it was send in the troops in the middle of the riots and the looting and the arsoning of the summer of 2020. The New York Times newsroom melted down. They said the op-ed made them physically unsafe, as if that mm. sitting in their cubicle could make them unsafe. And yet, because of the uproar, the New York Times killed the op-ed, apologized, didn't put it in the print edition, said it never they fired people, right? And they fired people over it. Exactly right. So 
I really don't know what the future is going to be for the mainstream media. Now, CNN is in the middle of an interesting potential change where their owners say they want to return, the new owners, the new president wants to return to objectivity. Well, this is after years of their daytime reporters, not their nighttime opinion people, not Sean Hannity, not their nighttime people, but people like Jim Acosta, people like John Harwood, who were trained to let their opinions rip at CNN. And their opinions were stridently anti-Republican, anti-conservative, anti-Trump. They were encouraged to let their opinions go on the air. And this is the White House correspondent for CNN. He didn't just ask questions, he took stands. And all of that is in my chapter about CNN, uh, John Harwood and Jim Acosta. Terrible, terrible reporting. Not neutral, not objective. Will CNN's new management put an end to it? I don't know. Mm, we'll see. Meanwhile, Ari, I'm sure you saw this, and this is the type of book, because when I authored End of Discussion with Mary Catherine Ham a number of years ago now, it was about sort of the mob mentality, shutting down debate, uh, cancel culture effectively. It's the type of book that you could probably just write sequel after sequel after sequel. It just keeps going. I feel like there's a strong possibility here for that as well, to make this a series on the press by Ari Fleischer, because at least in the near term, it is not going to stop. We don't really see many signs of a course correction. So after you went to print, long after you could add to the book, there's just, you know, a whole blizzard of examples that could very much just, you know, tack on a chapter here, tack on a chapter there. We talked for much of the first hour today about the normalization of intimidation and threats and thuggery and to some extent even violence on the political left going to Supreme Court justices' homes, hounding people at restaurants, you know, uh, terrorist attacks against pro-life centers. And one of the examples that I just keep coming back to is the very recent assassination plot against a sitting Supreme Court justice. I only laugh out of a sense of being incredulous. That is a massive news story. Someone was whipped up into anger. My full discussion with Ari Fleischer about his new book, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias. It's available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also, part of the free podcast, every day on demand, no charge to you at all. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Yesterday was my first show back from vacation. And producer Christine was itching to jump in with questions. We didn't have time. So she has been somewhat politely but assertively browbeating me to ask questions, and I will do my best to answer them. When we come back, stay with us. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show. See you tonight on Kennedy. A little after the top of the 7 o'clock hour, Fox Business Network. Looking forward to that. Tune in live or set your DVRs. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Here, podcast free every day. And I mentioned yesterday during the home stretch that I was on vacation up in Cape Cod last week, and it has been just wonderful. It was a blessing. We've had incredible weather. I mean, the best weather I can remember in recent times when I've been up here. So that's a huge plus that makes everything better. Beach trips more fun, all of it not too hot, not humid, very little clouds or rain. Had Adam up here for the week, 
hanging out with my parents. My brother and his girlfriend were around. So it's just been great doing all the things. And I gave you a little insight, a little window into another big part of my life for years, sports broadcasting and the reunion broadcast that we did over the weekend. Played a few clips yesterday during the segment. This segment, of course, the home stretch. You can go back and catch that on the podcast if you'd like. Wyatt gave me the news quiz to make sure that I had not completely fallen off the radar in terms of current events, and I passed it well enough. But all of this prevented producer Christine from going into curious Christine mode because she had many questions. I know a number of them may have dealt with the issue of sharks. She seemed to have a very outsized concern about sharks because they're sometimes in the news about being in this neck of the woods, in fact, just off our beach, not far from where my parents' house is. But I preempted that yesterday by just announcing that there were no shark sightings by me or anyone that I know over the course of the week. So hopefully we have put the shark question to bed, maybe. But let's bring in producer Christine, who, of course, is still curious. And Christine, fire away at will. Well, I was still going to ask about the shark because they just said yesterday five shark sightings were reported just in one day off your beach. Now, off this beach in particular or off of Cape Cod overall? Well, isn't wouldn't Cape Cod just be the beach? No, it's a very big place. You've been here, Christine. You've been here yeah, multiple times. Yeah, but like the times. beach off of Cape Cod, that whole side, that's the beach. No, there's, there's beaches along every edge of the entire Cape, many miles. Well, I don't, it's a big place. Well, I don't know how to pronounce it. Nauset? Nauset Beach. Nauset, yeah. However, that's Cape right Cod. near us. That's how you want to hear my Boston accent. Ready? I'm going up to Cape Cod. Nothing. That's not terrible, actually. <laughs> we got to get through Boston. We got to drive a car through Boston. Car, the get- car. <laughs> yes, I did not see okay. any sharks. I did not go in the water very much, only up to my knees. But it was, was it, not. Was it cold? Yeah, it was cold. Although not as cold as it has been, but it can be refreshing if it gets really hot. That's the thing. If it's so hot at the beach that a dip sort of counterbalances and lets you recenter your sort of personal climate, that can be helpful. But because it's been so glorious up here, I was not overheating on the beach. So I was very happy to just sit there with a slight breeze, read my book, hang out, and then maybe just dip my toe in the water. And then that was more than enough for me. So no sharks, No scares, no fins, no Jaws soundtrack. Everything was fine. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you miss me? Be honest. What is a 0 and what is a 10? (laughs) Like 0 is, like I didn't, like I forgot about your existence. And 10 was, I I was like sobbing every night. Pretty much, but I never said 0. I said 1. To 10. Oh, sorry. Yes, I, I, I had just given a new offering on the spectrum. Uh, okay, so if that's if zero's off the table and it's one through ten, I will say a, a two. Oh, my God. I feel like if Wyatt asked you this question, it would probably be, like, above a five. No, I mean, I, I enjoy working with you guys, and we're a great team, and I definitely missed the show. But I think you can relate. When you're on vacation— and you're with your family and doing other things, you're not like, oh, gosh, I really wish I were 
surrounded by my work colleagues right now, even if they're great work colleagues, which you all are. Even if they're best friends? Well, I think that depends on the definition of that term and who's using it. All right, next question. Okay, so you talk about this Cape Cod League. And, okay, what's an angler, by the way? Oh, the Cape Cod Baseball League. Yeah. So an angler is a fisherman. Oh, I've never heard that term before. Mm-hmm. Angling is fishing, and an angler is a fisherman, and they used to be the A's. It's a long story, Major League Baseball and copyright stuff, and I won't get into it, but they were the A's for many decades. Then they felt like they had to make some changes for various reasons, so they became the anglers, although the logo looks very similar. It's an A and an S like A's, and then there's a little fish hook as the apostrophe, which is pretty clever. Okay. That is actually very clever. But I'm so confused by this by this baseball team. This is not professional baseball players. Are these people – this isn't like part of the farm system where these people are about to – you know, they could possibly get up to the majors, correct? Uh, that's, I'm very impressed by that question. That is a, I would say, wow. pretty – savvy question for someone who is not a baseball fan. This is not a farm system. This is not a farm team. These Here at the league, there's 10 of them. They don't feed into any Major League Baseball organization. This is an amateur league, wooden bats, no admission fee. It's just sort of past the hat, 50-50, very Americana. It is a collegiate summer league, and generally it's the very best college players in the country who compete at the college level, And then summertime they come up and they play in this league, and it's an opportunity for them to play against really, really top-flight talent and to show off their skills for scouts, major league scouts. And there's a ton of them here. And so at least as of a few years ago, I know that the league is sort of changing a little bit and college sports is changing and all of it, but until recently the stat at least was true that Roughly one out of every four major league players who played in college played at some point in this league. So it's a proving ground. Yeah. So you see. So, for example, I was the play by play broadcaster, one of them for the Chatham A's for four summers, along with Dan Duva. And those were 2003, 04, 05 and 06. Those were my four summers. The 2005 team in Chatham had 13, if I'm remembering correctly, let's just call it a dozen, roughly a dozen guys on that roster eventually made it into Major League Baseball, 12 or 13 of them. And I would say probably close to half a dozen were Major League All-Stars at some point. So it was a really cool opportunity to be 20 or 21, calling the games at night, getting to know these guys, hanging out with them a little bit, sometimes going to the beach or whatever they were doing. Amazing opportunity, a huge amount of talent up here. And then the towns are very supportive of and they embrace their teams, five in the east and five in the western divisions. And then, of course, the vacationing community, people who come up here for a week or two in the summer, often they will plan some of their vacation around Cape Cod games, Cape Cod League games, and they'll show up and enjoy it and bring the kids. And it's just sort of like a throwback to the good old days where it's all – Just very pure and wonderful. It's a great tradition. People have cherished it for many decades. And being at those games after a day at the beach or whatever, that's kind of my personal 
happy place. So I spent a lot of happy time last week, which is why, with all due respect, my answer was what it was, a 2 out of 10. It was not a reflection on you. It was a reflection on the environment to which I had been transported. Is that pretty good spin? Yeah, that's pretty good spin. One, I know we got to go soon. Another question. You said that people would come up to scout the players. Did you ever get scouted for, um, like, an, I don't know how it would work, but did anybody ever say to you, wait a second, you are really good at this. Like, you should probably be doing this professionally. Because you are well, really, was, it sounded great to me. My goal was to do it professionally, and that's really what's happening now. So we started the broadcasting 20 years ago, Dan and I. In this they league. never had it before? Yeah, it was not a thing. So we wow. started it and tried to set the standard, and slowly it's grown to the point that the whole league does it. And now it is a proving ground for collegiate broadcasters who want to get to the next level, and a good number of them have gone pro. So it's sort of now a, a dual track. You've got the baseball, which is the main event, but people who are aspiring sportscasters come up to this league. It's sort of like their equivalent which is part of the legacy that we helped establish. It's very cool. It's a really cool thing. You at some point should come up here during the summer, maybe when I'm, you know, not here, and then you can bring Bobby would love it. I think even Megan might find it entertaining for at least a little while. I think you would appreciate it just as sort of an all-American spectacle, even if you don't necessarily care deeply about the game. I think I would. I, we want to bring Megan to some sort of game. She's never gone to any type of game, either professionally or just like you know, um, I don't, whatever. They're well, let me let me give you a word of advice on that. You need to preempt Bobby on this and get her to a Yankees game at Yankee right. Stadium before he starts to indoctrinate her into the dark <sighs> side and the Boston Red Sox. Don't let him do that. You need to sort of get the first blow in. So just like. Put her in the car one day and say, Mommy has a surprise when maybe Bobby's out of town or something, and bring her to the stadium and make, get her a little, you know, Yankee shirt and make sure that she is raised properly in this regard. Well, I think um, Bobby will concede that since we are living around the New York area and she okay. was born and raised around here, you know, she, if she right, wants, That's rational, she wants, Yeah, I mean, he's rational, unlike me. Um, yeah, okay, last question. When are we thinking about buying a house up there? Oh, me? When are we, we going to do this? Oh, we. Well, mm-hmm. why don't you let me know when you've got the money and probably the money for a private jet to get up there because it's such a long drive for me. So when you've got a beautiful mansion on the water and a private jet, then contact me, and I would love to get in on that. <sighs> Goodbye, guy. Well, I think it's fair, right? At some point, one of your crazy schemes is going to pay off, right? Whether it's through, what, investing in a horse or whatever they're going to be. At some point, oh, you can talk to your... I don't even want to your... tell you. I, I think I'm over the apartment already. I started looking at houses again. Oh, good. And no, so, that, so that experiment, that experiment has been what a few months. Yeah, so at some we point you're going to strike, March. you're going to strike gold at some point along the line, and then you can, the floodgates will open, and you can afford all sorts of things, and then we'll have a conversation. I think that's a great idea, and I will await that day with bated breath. And my guess is I will probably run out of breath before it happens, but we'll see. One never knows. 
Got to run. Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business Network, back here on the radio, same time and same place. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.